Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill quickly, write 80. Okay, we're going to stop there for a second. This is a story about a pretty slimy guy. Okay, if you're an employer, you do not want this man working for you. This is a manager who's getting fired because he couldn't do the accounts for his boss the right way. And then when his boss hears about it and is about to fire him, he goes to the folks that his boss uh, or that work for his boss or have business dealings with his boss, and he reduces the debt that they owe to his boss. The first by 50%, the next by 20%. He loses his employer significant amounts of money on purpose to gain favor with the townspeople for a softer landing after he's hired. This is not a good guy. This is not a good guy. This is something equivalent to giving all your friends free coffee when you work at the coffee shop. You make lots of friends, but everybody kind of knows that you're a slimy guy and you're cheating your boss out of money. Except instead of a coffee shop, you work at Tiffany's, okay? And you're giving your friends discounts on huge, expensive uh, jewelry. These are major transactions we're talking about in Jesus' story. The dishonest manager cuts about a year and a half's wage off these two debts. Let's round it off to a hundred grand, okay? As we know, the Bible is a book that teaches us the right way to live. It's, it teaches a path of, of honesty, morality, righteousness. It condemns illegal and unethical behavior. The Bible's a guide to the moral life. So, Jesus sets this story up for us as a warning right? As an example of what not to do, right? The Bible's got to speak against this behavior, right? Wrong. Look at verses 8 and 9. After Jesus tells the story of this slimy guy, Jesus' assessment and summary of his behavior is entirely positive. He commends him to us. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Interesting. For the sons of this world, Jesus says, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. So, my question for us this morning is very simple. What in the world is going on in this story? By far the weirdest one Jesus ever told. How do you explain this bizarre story, this even offensive story from Jesus? This is not what he's supposed to be teaching us, and yet he is. Okay, this has been such a tricky parable over the history of the church that all kinds of interpretations have popped up about it. 
And in fact, in the fourth century, one opponent of Christianity, a man named Julian, even cited this story as evidence that Jesus is teaching his followers to be liars and thieves, and any noble Roman citizen should run away from this religion as fast as they can. Look at what this guy teaches. This is a hard story. This is a hard teaching. What do we do with the hard teachings of Jesus, the confusing ones? the ones that seem to contradict so much we know about the Bible already. I think if we begin with the belief that all Scripture really is breathed out by God, and all of the Bible really is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, as Timothy teaches us, or Paul teaches Timothy, and that the law of the Lord, as it says in Psalm 19, is perfect, It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. If we start there, then when we come to difficult or offensive passages, seemingly contradictory messages in the Bible, instead of throwing it out, instead of ignoring it, instead of just saying, yeah, that doesn't make sense, but let's focus on this part over here, instead of any of that, we can back, step away, and we can say, well, we know there's something good here. Jesus has told us there's something good here. And now, as we approach these hard texts, it becomes sort of like a treasure hunt, right? We get to dig. We know there's riches buried there. We know that there's truth to guide us. We know that there's gifts to nourish us. And so we can just start digging. And we can dig deeper with the certainty and the trust that God really does have something we need in this story. All right, so let's do that together this morning. Let's dig into Jesus' weirdest parable. What's this story about? I want to comb through this story again, point out a couple nuances that I think really open up its meaning for us. And then towards the end, we're going to look at two ways this strange and surprising parable applies to our life today, whether or not you're about to get fired. All right, that's the plan. So our main character is described as a manager. Other versions translate this as a steward. It would basically be middle management in a large corporation. His boss is the owner of an estate. He's described as a rich man. And our manager basically runs operations for him. He keeps the books. He collects rent. He he runs errands. He has relationships with all the people that his boss does business with. And most importantly, when he speaks in this capacity, he speaks on behalf of his boss. When the manager approaches a client or a business partner, it's on behalf of his boss, with his authority, with his voice. And the manager abuses this authority. He's apparently been scraping some off the top for himself for quite some time. Uh, He was found out, and obviously, he's fired. So now the manager has a couple options. Caught red-handed, he can beg for mercy from his manager, but he doesn't do that. He can um, claim that the accusations are untrue and take him to court. He doesn't do that either. Instead, he, does, uh, he, he comes to his decision, and verse 4 is the crux on which this story turns. He says, I've decided what to do. I, I see clearly my plan. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And this is the first thing we need to see to understand this story. The reason he could decide what to do with clarity is because he sees the future 
with clarity. Okay? He says, when I'm removed, not, not if I'm removed or not if I don't wiggle myself out of this tough situation, but like when I'm removed. He sees the future with certainty and with clarity. He knows the score. He's done. His certain future is clear as day. And because of that, because of knowing the future, he can live in the present with conviction and clarity. So he quietly leaves the room without saying anything to his boss, knowing he will be fired. But he also knows that he has one card left to play, and that's that no one else knows he's fired yet. All right? He still is in possession of the accounts. He's still in possession of the books. And he speaks on behalf of his manager, his boss. So he hatches a plan. It's high risk. It's high reward. He's all in. Uh, the stakes of the poker he's playing here are huge. This is his future. This is a, his ability to ever provide for his family again. This might be his very life at stake. He's all in. And the plan, honestly, is actually pretty brilliant. Okay? So he calls a couple of the high-end clients of his boss to a private meeting. First guy, what do you owe my master? A hundred measures of oil. Whew. That's going to take you a while to pay it back here quick. I speak for him, remember? I speak with his voice. Take that and write 50. You know, that, that should cover a couple years of the mortgage, so that should help you out a little bit. Isn't my boss a generous guy? Wink, wink. Second guy. What do you owe my master? A hundred measures of wheat. Whew, that's a lot. Here, I speak for him, remember? Why don't you take that and write 80? That should get you about a year's worth of tuition at that fancy university your daughter's going to next year. Um, isn't my boss a generous man? Wink, wink. See, privately, both of these clients are complicit in the theft. Everybody knows what's going on. They know they're cheating the boss out of money, but publicly, all the parties involved can still just chalk this up to the generosity of the head honcho. Both clients go back into town. They start spreading the good news that their generous, benevolent master, the, the master of the estate, the one who employs at least half the town, the economic generator of the whole region, their benefactor and their employer is even more generous than any of them thought to begin with. All right? And as that word spreads, a party breaks out. Okay? $100,000 just been erased from the dead of the town. Why not? Let's crack the fire hydrant. Someone fires up the grill. Block party on the spot. Someone brings the sound system. A party starts in the town, and the dishonest manager, yet incredibly shrewd manager, comes strolling back into his boss's office with the accounts in hand and a smile on his face. And this is the bet that he's been making the whole time. What is his boss going to do now? He's put him in a very interesting position, hasn't he? The boss could, if he wants to, call everybody back into the office along with the sheriff. He could make the accounts what they used to be. He could make the debts back what they used to be. He could send all these guys to jail for conspiring against him and trying to cheat him out of money. He could kill the party. Or, or he could forgive the debt and let the party roll on, okay? He could enjoy his increased reputation. He could bask in his increased glory in the town. He, he's more generous than anyone ever thought he was. He could let the town continue to sing his praises for years, and he could let this manager walk out of the room with his head held high, but he still doesn't have to put the guy on payroll, right? The boss could do all this 
but only if he forgives the debt, only if he bears the cost of his slimy manager's unethical, illegal activity. It's not a small cost, but he's a very wealthy man, and he can cover it. So what does he do? We aren't told. Jesus leaves us hanging. But I think it's actually not that hard to guess how this story ends. Jesus commends the dishonest manager in his shrewdness, in his wisdom, in his foresight, in his insight into human nature, because there were two crucial things the manager understood. Two things. First, he knew the future with clarity. Okay? He saw with clarity and certainty exactly what was going to happen. He acted quickly with conviction and with great risk in light of that certain future. There was no time to waste. The stakes were high. He was all in. First thing. But the second thing is that he had discerned and he had insight into the heart of his master. Okay? He knew that his boss at the end of the day, in his heart of hearts, really was a generous man. So he put a big old bet down and he put his boss in a position to say, if I put him in this spot where he could be harsh or he could be gracious, I bet that he's going to be gracious. He could be a man who lives by the letter of the law or he could be a generous, kind man. I'm betting he's going to be a generous, kind man. He had discerned his boss's heart and he put him in a position to leverage his generosity. He put him in a position where he could re- his boss could reap significant benefits from being generous. He was betting on his boss's character. And Jesus, after telling this story, turns to you and he says, um, are you as shrewd as that manager? Are you as shrewd? Jesus is commending his shrewdness, not his sinfulness. And this is the important distinction that we need to see in this parable. The unethical wheeling and dealing and, and this, of the story is not the point. Jesus is not holding up his dishonesty for us as an example, but his shrewdness. Jesus praises him for leveraging the generosity of his boss in light of his certain future. And then he says to you, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, he says to his followers then and today, are you that wise? Are you that smart? Are you willing to bet everything, high stakes, on the generosity of your master? Do you see your future with as much clarity and certainty as this man did. So in the time we have left, these are the two questions I want us to consider. They're the two questions I think Jesus is asking us in this super strange parable. Do you live in light of your certain future? And are you willing to go all in and bet on the generosity of your master? Do you live in light of your certain future? All right, if it isn't clear by now, in this parable, you and I are supposed to see ourselves in the shoes of the manager. Uh, I don't know if you think you you are crushing life right now, just have everything dialed, or if you feel like you are getting crushed by life right now, but either way, according to God's accounts, we have all mismanaged what he has given us to manage. We're sinners. We serve ourselves first with God's resources. We waste God's wealth on our own comfort and our own glory instead of growing his account and making his name great 
in all the earth. We are siphoning off his gifts to use for our selfishness. We deserve to be fired, to say the least. We are the dishonest manager. But in God's great mercy and his grace, he doesn't actually demand that we repay him for what we've mismanaged and stolen. Jesus covers the debt and the cost of our damage out of his own wealth. He paid the price for our sin by sending Jesus to endure the prison and the punishment of the cross. Paul puts it amazingly well in 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know this, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And that's, that's the thing about Christianity. Not only does Jesus cover our debt, but he pours the wealth of heaven into our account. By his poverty, he pours riches into our life. The spiritual wealth of joy and hope and relationship and community and love are ours into eternity in Christ. The manager's horizon in this story was only as far as his earthly life. He was trying to figure out how to have a soft landing for the next 30 or 40 years, but he was excellent at living in light of his certain future. He was shrewd. He was wise. But Jesus wants you to go further. Jesus asks, do you understand the future that I have secured for you? Do you really, do you know your future in me? I've not merely saved you from a life of debt. I've secured a future of riches for you into eternity. In Philippians 1, we read that he who began a good work in you will see it through completion. You will be perfect and whole and healthy in Christ. In Matthew 28, he promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be with you. This is God's certain word that you will never walk through this world alone, that he will shepherd you and guide you. John 14, he says, I'm preparing a place for you in my father's house. Whatever that physical thing looks like in heaven that we're going to live in someday, I think his point here is that you are part of my family and you will always sit at my family table. You will always fellowship with me. You will always be in my house. Ephesians 2, I'm building you into a holy temple. You will never be alone. You will always be connected to my people. I will be with you and among you. The promises that God pours out of heaven, the riches, they just keep piling and piling. It's like a waterfall. You can't even stand up under the force of them sometimes. How would your life be different today? How would your life be different today if you knew your certain future in Christ into eternity? If you believed those promises all the way down in your heart of hearts, into eternity, and you had clarity and certainty about your future, how would that change the way you live today? The manager said, I've decided what to do. Um, And we can say that too. I've decided what to do, but not when I'm removed from management. We get to say, I've decided what to do today because God will make me complete and whole not lacking anything, and I will delight in the work God's doing in my life, whatever form it takes. And we get to say, I've decided what to do today because God will remove the power of sin in my life and in the world very soon, and I can live with great freedom today. I'm not enslaved to that. I know my certain future.
We get to say, I've decided what to do today because God will take all that is wrong in the world and make justice reign over his creation very soon. I know that God will use me even in my little meager attempts at at contributing to his kingdom. He will use me to build his kingdom on earth and I will reign with him forever. Jesus is saying in this parable, I think, it's a weird one, but I think this is what he's saying, don't live in light of just the next two to five years of your life planning. Don't live in light of just the next 30 to 40 years of your retirement savings planning. Live in light of your certain future resurrection life into eternity with Christ. And let that shape how you decide what to do today. Don't be slightly shrewd. Be eternally shrewd. Live with the clarity and the conviction that in Jesus, he will shepherd you and be with you through all of life. And finally, ask what it would look like in your own life to leverage the infinite generosity of God's heart. How do you put a big old bet down that God is as generous and giving as he claims to be? The dishonest manager in our story did a quick calculation. I will get fired, that's the fact. But I know the man who pulls the strings. And if I can put him in a position for his generosity to shine, if I can make him choose between being kind or harsh, or committed to the letter of the law or gracious, I have a pretty good idea on which side he's going to fall. The dishonest manager risks everything on the intuition that generosity is at the core of his master. His hunch is confirmed. Lucky for him. You and I don't have to make a hunch. You and I don't have to have an intuition. We are told in God's word, from God's mouth, about his generous heart for you. And anyone who's been walking with the Lord for any amount of time probably has a story about God's kindness and generosity and grace in their own life. In his heart of hearts, he's a giver. In his heart of hearts, he's kind, he's merciful, he's gentle and lowly, he wants your best, he is for you. How do you leverage in your life the generosity and the kindness of God? He's asking us to put God's word to the test. Jesus is calling his people to make even bigger bets and stake even more resources on the generosity of God than this man did in this story. He's saying, put God in a position to prove that his word is true. That live in such a way that it only makes sense if God's promises to you are real. Is it really better to give than to receive? God says so. Try it. Put him to the test. Leverage his generosity. See how deep his heart of generosity really goes. Is it really safe to forgive others when they sin against me? Not to, not to hold anything against them, not to make them pay in kind or withhold dignity and love that they deserve. Is that safe? Doesn't sound safe. Try it and see how deep the generosity and the kindness of God goes. Is it really good, is it really a good use of our time and resources to show hospitality? You want to come finish this with me? Come on. We're like one minute from being done. All right, Bubba. I'll take it. 
Levering God's generosity means putting God in a position to prove that his word is true, that his word is real. We can take him to the bank. Put God in a position where his word's on the line, test him, and see how deep his heart of love for you really goes. I love Psalm 16, 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In Christ, the lines have fallen for you in incredibly generous places. Put him to the test. Put a big old bet down that God's heart for you is grace and care and forgiveness. We've got to wrap this up. But that's a fun parable, isn't it? I mean, what a wild story. So surprising, so interesting, so generous and gracious at the end. It's so Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, this word, this uh, fascinating story from your word. Thank you for being our generous master. Thank you for your heart of care for us. Help us be shrewd enough to live in light of our certain future in you. Help us trust you with all our resources and put a big old bet down that you are who you say you are. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. The lines have fallen for us in incredibly favorable places. Amen.